it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Finally, step-by-step premium investment guidance for beginners. Led by... Andrew Sather, and Dave Ahern, to decode industry jargon, silence crippling confusion, and help you overcome emotions by looking at the numbers. Your path to financial freedom starts now. All right, folks, well, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. This is episode 53. Andrew and I are going to take a stab at talking about negative earnings. Uh, we had some interesting event happen this week, and Andrew and I were having a conversation prior to coming on here today, and we wanted to talk a little bit about negative earnings. So just to kind of give you a little of a bit of a backstory. So last week, uh, Andrew sent me a text message telling me that one of the companies that he and I both own had negative earnings on their 10K. And this caught me completely by surprise. I was shocked and I had no idea that it, that it happened. And I was a little bit like, wow, crazy. And I was just, it kind of caught me because it, I felt like it came from out of, out of the blue. And I had no idea that, that this company had happened and, you know, I wasn't paying that close of attention, honestly. And so it was something that really caught me off guard. And so as Andrew and I were talking about it, it's, you know, Andrew and I see eye to eye on almost everything. But in this particular case, we differed a little bit on our viewpoints of how we handled it. And so it was kind of an interesting snapshot into how value investors think about things. And it's not always exactly the same. And so I had a different viewpoint and Andrew had a different viewpoint. And I thought it would be interesting for us to talk a little bit about that tonight. So Andrew, why don't you go ahead and tell your side of the story, if you will, and then I can tell mine. <laughs> what, what is this, a divorce? Are we fighting? <laughs> Hardly. <laughs> well, let me get my lawyer and, and we'll have somebody get in between and, and they can relay this message and then you can reply <laughs> after. You've got some time to calm down, think it over, maybe take a walk, cool off. Yeah, go. but no, this will be fun. Like, um, like you said, we kind of agree on everything and it'll be fun to have a little bit of a debate. Uh, I'm not really going to call it a debate. I'm just going to present how I do it. You, we kind of talked before coming on and you talked about some of the reasons why you're doing what you're going to do. And so I see that side a lot. And I, I think a lot of it has to do with the way we're structuring our portfolios and, and the different strategies that we try to take. So. For me, it's it's kind of simple and it's not much to talk about. Uh, I've talked about over and over again how the way I structure 
my strategy is I split my portfolio into two basic segments. I have the regular portfolio with a 25% trailing stop attached. And those I tend to focus more on the margin when it comes to margin of safety rather than the safety. Uh, in those cases, I'll look for things that are really undervalued. They tend to have a lot of negative sentiment around them when they're so steeply undervalued. So might have to you know, buck the trend, but also have chances for quick gains. Or you know, a stock that has really high growth, but because of that, they don't pay much of a dividend or don't have any dividend growth. Uh, you know, I, I still always buy stocks with dividends, but that could be the case as well. And that would be a regular position for me. And then obviously I have the dividend fortresses, which are companies that I look for that are growing their dividend, look to grow them for a very long time and obviously still trading at a good price and a good safety when it comes to margin of safety with more emphasis on the safety. So what one of the rules that I implement, and so this is generally just for the dividend fortress sell, but this particular position is it's it's applying to this position as well, and it's one with a twenty five percent trailing stop. So definitely, it's important to have strict rules for where you're going to sell. I think that's key number one, and number two is. When you set these rules, do not make exceptions. So in my case, once I once Dave told me the justifications for why he's not going to sell the stock, I started to feel bad because there's a really good chance that the company is going to continue on just fine and maybe selling the stock is going to be a mistake. And if you look at the stock chart, the market's kind of pricing it in already. They're not too worried about what's going to happen and, and you'll figure out why in a second. And so, you know, it's it's definitely a bummer and it's opportunity for me to really feel like I'm missing out. And part of setting the sell strategy in the beginning and understanding that this is where you're going to go is you need to be consistent with it and follow through whether how painful it is or or how nice it might seem. So my hard, fast rules for a dividend fortress, and this also applies for my regular holdings, is A, if it has negative earnings, I'm going to sell no matter what. I talked about this in episode 48, but I did research on bankruptcies and I did the most recent 30 biggest bankruptcies spanned all the way back to the early 2000s. And the out of all the financials, putting all the major ones that I always like to look at, revenue, earnings, assets, liabilities, equity, cash at the end of the year. The biggest thing that was all consistent between those was negative earnings. More companies had negative earnings than not. And so in the case of the companies that did go bankrupt, it was more of a 50% chance that a company would have negative earnings. Now, that's not to say that Every company in the stock market, if they have negative earnings, it's a 50 per, 50% chance they're going to go bankrupt. Obviously, that's not true. We have, what, 500 companies in the S&P 500, and you're talking about maybe 30 of them that went bankrupt. It's not a big percentage. It's not nearly close to 50%. However, this is just my approach, and this is something I observed, and being so focused on trying to avoid any sort of value trap or risk of bankruptcy, that's why I don't 
That's why I always sell at negative earnings. And that's what I'm going to do for this stock. The second one is if a company stops paying a dividend completely. And again, this goes back to my investing strategy, my principles, the things that I've pounded on the table over and over and over again in this podcast about how to me, an investment is something that pays you an income. And the best way to get compound interest is to reinvest that income. And how if a stock isn't paying you a dividend, it's not paying you an income. So how can it really be an investment? And it turns more towards a speculation. And you need the market to agree with you in order to make money. So that's where I stand with dividends. And that's why any position I hold that stops paying the dividend will be sold right away. The third and final, and this one's not as black and white as the first two, and that's a very large increase in debt to equity. So where I said with the bankruptcy research about negative earnings, there was also a big similarity in debt to equity. It wasn't as common as negative earnings, but I did see some sort of correlation, meaning the companies that did go bankrupt tended to have higher debt to equities than normal. And you, uh, in many cases, you saw sharp increases in the final years that these companies went bankrupt. So another trend I observed. And so something that I will be keeping in mind in the situation as of yet. Not an easy thing because, you know, to say debt to equity rising sharply that can be very vague and, and I didn't put a number to it. I didn't see any relationship between how it rose and, and which companies went bankrupt and, and all those sorts of things. But that's one where it's going to have to be a little bit more intuitive. If I might say, like last week, using more of the art part of value investing rather than the science. And so those are kind of like my three big sell points other than a trailing stop for the regular portfolio. And so those are really the only cases where I'm selling in either section of my portfolio. When it comes to the dividend fortresses, I want to hold those forever if I can. Continue to reinvest those dividends and maybe even live off those dividends one day. So as it continues to climb, I'm just going to continue to hold. When it comes to the regular ones, you know, those might climb up really high. People might say, well, why don't you take some profits? Sure, I'll take some profits, but let's let it ride all the way up. And then the trailing stop will automatically get me out after a good amount of profits. So that's that's the logic behind why I'm going to sell. That's my thinking and that's my viewpoint. That's my sell strategy. And it's what I continue to do moving forward. Uh, I think it would be fun to kind of play back this episode, maybe refer to it in a year after the stock's doubled. And Dave, you can laugh in my face because <laughs> I missed out on this opportunity. But you know, I have no problem with it. And Honestly, it's as unemotional to me as like getting a piece of paper and putting some scissors through and just cutting it. Like, uh, I got a nice portfolio. I got a lot of positions, and you, you kind of have to be cold, cold blooded when it comes to cutting them off. And so that's what I'm going to do in this situation. But it's a great story and a valuable lesson in there, too. And there's a lot of value investors and people who listen to the podcast who don't necessarily have the same strategy that I do or the same approach, or the same kind of values or principles or viewpoints when it comes to investing. And that's where Dave's going to come in and really tell us you know, what's going on and when negative earnings are okay and when they're not. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, 
I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card worth more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. Uh, well, they're definitely not, but in this, <laughs> in this, <laughs> I mean, they're not. And, you know, the thing is, is that I agree with everything that Andrew said, you know, his, his, his view and his philosophy on when to sell a stock are rock solid. And those are absolutely perfect examples of when you should sell a stock. In this particular case, it just, you know, I had to know why, because it's a company that I've had and I really believe in, and I think the management is great and I think their products are great and it's done really well for me since I bought it. And it just really caught me off guard. And so I had to investigate. I couldn't just take it on face value that, hey, this company had negative earnings, I'm going to sell. I had to know why. And, you know, because it just didn't seem, didn't seem logical to me. And so the company in in uh, that we're talking about is Corning. Uh, this is the the ticker for it is GLW, and I've held it for I believe four years now. And it was a company that Andrew held as well, but as you heard, he is selling it, so he felt comfortable revealing that to people. So the so kind of the backstory of of Corning, if you're not familiar with the company, which probably most of you are not, because it's definitely a boring company. It's not exciting, not sexy by any stretch of the imagination. They make glass. 
So that may not sound like super exciting and it's really kind of not, but they make glass for phones, iPhones, for example. They also make them for cars and they use it for a lot of other different things. And the company has been around since the 1800s and they've done very, very well. It's never been a high flyer. It's never been super sexy stock, but it's been very consistent and it pays a dividend and they've been increasing the dividend since I've held it. And so kind of what happened was Andrew sent me the text message, like I mentioned. And so as soon as I got the text message, you know, he and I went back and forth a little bit and I thought, you know what, I'm going to look it up myself. So I went on the sec.gov and looked up the 10 K, which was just released. Uh, it was released uh, a little bit about three weeks ago. And so I thought, well, I'm going to look it up and find out why did this happen? Cause it's going to say in there, that's one of the beauties of the 10 K is they have to reveal all this to us, the investors, the people that pay their salaries. So I looked it up and I started reading and I started reading and I, you know, I came across before I found out the reason why the first thing I saw was the, the main reason why they had negative earnings was they had a huge tax hit and it took me a few minutes to kind of discover why that happened. But before I get there, I just I started checking other things along the way of looking in the 10K for the exact reason why this negative earnings happened. So when I looked at their revenues, they were right in line with what they were the year before and the year before and the year before. They were up about 8%, and which is great. And then I looked at you know all their other costs that they had. Everything was right in line. Uh, their debt had not risen hardly at all. And so everything just kind of fell in line. I mean, when I looked at the revenue for all the different departments that they had, it was all in line with what they had had the year before and the year before and the year before. Uh, their costs were all in line as well. Uh, there wasn't any huge spike in anything other than this tax liability that that hit. I looked at their balance sheet. Everything was exactly the same as it was before. There was no major changes in anything. You know, their assets were roughly the same. Their liabilities were roughly the same. So again, I, I kept coming back to what, what happened? Where did this come from? And it just, it looked, if I didn't see that negative tax hit, I wouldn't have, it would have been a normal 10K for them. It would have been, you know, a positive earnings growth, positive revenue growth, positive, you know, uh, you know, making money, everything would have been perfect. And it, the other thing that I noticed and uh, kind of sp- Andrew was talking about dividend cuts, they actually raised their dividend again. So they've had, you know, positive dividend growth over the last four years. And so, you know, all those things would lead me to think, well, this is a great company, but there was this one negative thing that was dragging it down, causing it to have negative earnings. So the other thing that I did in addition to reading through the 10K, and this took me about half an hour or so to kind of read through everything and, and kind of get an idea of what was going on. I also looked at their stock chart, which I never, ever do, but I just thought, you know, just for giggles, I'm just going to go back and look and see if the stock market has really reacted to this kind of negative news with their 10K and it hadn't budged hardly at all. It, you know, it gone down, uh, you know, maybe 20 cents, you know, over the course of the time. And that's also with the market kind of being super volatile for these last, you know, couple months. So that to me was like, well, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. So if Wall Street's not freaking out about this, then why am I freaking out about this? And so 
then I started reading more into the 10K and reading more into the 10K. And I finally came to the part where the, uh, the management was explaining what happened. And basically what it boiled down to is, you may or may not know this, but uh, the president just recently revamped our tax code, which also affected corporations. And his intention with doing that was bringing, trying to allow these companies, A, to keep their businesses here in the United States so that we have jobs and they can pay taxes here in the States and everything. But the other thing was he wanted to repatriate a lot of money that was being held overseas. Uh, you probably heard that Apple had, I don't know, $350 million billion overseas that was being held in Ireland, and they were not reluctant to bring it back because they didn't want to get a 38% tax hit, which don't blame them. So anyway, so part of all this, part of his reasoning for doing that was to try to bring some of this cash back so it could be reinvested in the company here in the United States and grow jobs and you know all that kind of fun stuff. So anyway, Corning most of their business is done overseas. They do, they have plants in Korea and in Japan. And so in the course of my investigation, I discovered that they chose, they chose to leave the money overseas and they took a penalty because they did that. They took a penalty of upwards of $2.1 million, which was a huge hit to their bottom line, which caused the negative earnings. And the reason why they chose to do that is because the majority of their money is in foreign currency and to convert it and bring it back to the United States would have been a bigger tax law, a bigger loss than if they just taken it with the one time tax penalty that the government slapped on them for making that decision. And they didn't have a lot of time to make this decision because it was this tax law was enacted early early, late November, early December. So they didn't have a lot of time to, to make a decision on this, but that's what they chose to do. Now you could disagree or, or agree with them. That's really kind of up to you. But to me, when I just saw that it was just a one-time tax hit that they ch- made a choice, a business decision to not you know, lose more money, I thought that was a good decision. And so that's why I chose not to, at this point to sell the company. Now, with the with the stock price not you know the bottom falling out it gives me time to breathe and think about what it is i want to do with this and like i was telling andrew before we came on the air was you know when the next quarter's 10q comes out you bet your butt i'm going to look at that and make sure that everything else that i was looking at for the 10k lines up exactly the way it should and if it does then to me then that's just a a blip on the radar and I'm just going to keep going forward. It, it could be, you know, something as simple as, you know, something negative happening, like, you know, Steve Jobs dying for Apple or, you know, I'm not going to compare that, but it's a negative. It was certainly negative news when that happened to Apple, but the company has rebounded quite nicely since then. But I guess my point being with all this is that, you know, Andrew mentioned earlier about the, the fear of missing out. And that's definitely in play with, with things like this. And I admire Andrew for sticking to his guns. Even when I pointed out to him, Hey, this is why this is happening. He said, he said to me, it doesn't matter. This is one of my rules. I gotta, I gotta stick with it, you know, and I agree with him. He should stick with it. And that's one of my rules too, but I also wanted to know why. And based on what I know, I made a decision not to sell it because I think it's, I have time. And that's the other thing is when, the stock market is freaking out and that's one of the great things about what we're doing here is you could this is i thought was a good teachable moment 
to look at taking the time to not just reacting to something and overreacting. I'm not saying Andrew overreacted. That's far from it. But what I am saying is, is that whenever you have to make a decision about whether you want to buy or sell a company, you need to think, you need to think about it. You need to breathe and take a deep breath and not react to what you see negative on CNBC or MSNBC about something horrible thing happening and looking at the numbers and looking at the, the productivity of the company. Nothing has changed about Corning, you know, since the news that I got from Andrew, it's still all running exactly the same. And so that's why I chose not to sell the company at this time. Hey, you, what's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's free ebook at stockmarketpdf.com. You won't regret it. Can you talk about some of the specific metrics that you saw that you particularly liked that made the earnings hit not, you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, yeah, how would yeah, absolutely. Other than that earnings, what to look at? Um, yes. So I looked at the, uh, I looked at the net earnings. I also looked at, um, each particular segment, uh, Corning has five different segments that they break their business down into. And I looked at the sales growth, uh, for all of those. And they're all, they're all increasing like they were the year before. Uh, I also looked at the, you know, yes, the PE ratio was negative because it, you know, has a negative earnings, but their shareholder equity had not changed. Uh, I also looked at uh, their debt to equity ratio had gone up slightly, but that's because they took on some assets. They are, they, uh, they bought some stuff basically went on a little bit of a shopping spree during the course of the year and bought a few things, but they were buying assets that are going to help them down the road. The other, uh, I didn't do like a return on, on equity or a return on assets or anything of that nature. I didn't, I didn't go to those realms. I just basically looked at <clears throat> the income statement, the cash flow statement, and the balance sheet. I looked at all three of those documents, and then I just compared those numbers, every single number on there from the year before. So I looked at any sort of hedging that they do. Corning does hedging for their currency to try to help mitigate any uh, conversion losses they may have from the foreign currency to the U.S. dollar. And those were all right in line with everything that they were doing before. I looked at all their assets and I looked at all their liabilities and every single item line by line by line was right on line with everything else that had been the year before and the year before and the year before. So I didn't just look at the 10K for 2017. I also went back and looked at the 10K for 2016 and 15. So I could kind of go farther back to make sure that I was you know, pulling data in from more than just a three-year snapshot. I was trying to look at about eight or nine years worth of, of numbers and everything was growing just like it had been for the last eight or nine years. So every single line item. So, you know, looking at the income statement, looking at the you know earnings before interest and taxes was exactly where it should have been without this tax hit. Now, obviously, after the tax hit on the earnings, you know, on the interest income statement, I'm sorry, there was obviously a negative number there because that's obviously a big number to take out of your bottom line. And that's really those, you know, those were the numbers that I was looking at. But again, to come back to it, I look at all three financial statements and to make sure that everything that I was looking at was exactly there. And then, you know, there's a section in the 10 K where there's a kind of a management's discussion where they were 
uh, Wendell Weeks, who is the CEO of the company, that's his opportunity to talk to me and tell me what's going on with the company. And that was ex- that was in the first paragraph. That's exactly what he said was that about the tax hit and why they did it and why their decision to make to make this one time decision. Everything else was right in line with what they were talking about. So does that help answer your question? It does. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up earnings before interest and taxes. That's a ratio we don't really talk about much, EBIT, but it's one that's widely used in finance and uh, accounting, especially. And that's like the perfect situation to look at a ratio like that because you're ignoring the taxes, making sure the core part of the business is solid, making sure you know the business model's there. It's not because of like a decline in in demand. It's not like customers don't want their products anymore or businesses don't want to buy from them it's it's strictly because of taxes and so with exactly everything you talked about looking through the the various years and also metric like ebit or revenue that's that can be a great way to make sure the core part of the business is still intact and what they're saying in the annual report is in fact true and not just you know smoke coming out of them now, this might be a little bit of unfair of a question uh, since you haven't had time to prepare, but I noticed uh, when you bought the stock, it was at 1636. Today, it's at 2953 as, as of uh, Thursday, we're recording this. Uh, you have this all posted, which we don't talk about your site enough, but it's intrinsicvalueformula.com and you have like a header that's called stock picks. So we kind of had this discussion about Corning now and obviously is uh, bullish as far as like a holding perspective. Uh, do you, would you say the logic changes uh, for a prospective investor who might be looking at this company from scratch? Is the argument the same or different when it comes to looking at Corning where it's at today? Well, that's more of a, that's more of a question of whether you think the intrins- if it's still below its intrinsic value. And that is a question that, honestly, I have not really delved into because I bought the stock at, like you said, 1656, and I've held it to where it is now. And at the time, I felt like it was undervalued when I bought it. Do I feel like it's undervalued now? I probably would say yes, but that's without me doing any sort of research or really digging into where I think it could go. Um, I know through reading the 10Ks through the last four years since I bought the company and reading farther back, they have plans, of course, and they have ideas of things that they want to do to try to grow their revenue. They're a fairly conservative company. They're not a big high flyer. They're not flashy. Uh, they're not going out and trying to use their money to make big splashes and buy other companies that could maybe help grow them faster. Uh, because they've been around for a long, long time, I think they're just more comfortable doing conservative things, which I like. You know, I like boring, and especially when it comes to the stock market. I like boring. <laughs> Maybe not so much with my sandwich, but yeah, definitely with my stock picks. But, um, you know, so uh, would if somebody was walking into today and they saw the negative earnings on there, I probably would, 
it, for me, I would hold off. It would definitely be something that if I was investigating it and I was doing the research that I would do to buy a company and I saw something like that, it would give me pause for sure. And I would probably hold off until I would see the next earnings report from them to not so much that I'm looking for the bottom line earnings report, but more to make sure that everything else that I've been looking at is going to be continuing to grow, that all their segments are all still firing, you know, that everything that they're doing is continuing to work and that, you know, to reassure me that this tax hit is a one-time thing. And, you know, we may talk about this in three months and I may find out that I was wrong. And, you know, that's wouldn't be the first time and it probably won't be the last. And if it is, then I'll sell the company. You know, it's just, it's that simple. It's, you know, but I think, you know, based on what I saw, it looks to me like it was a blip on the radar. It was a one-time thing. And that's, you know, kind of coming back to the art of value investing. I trust the CEO of the company everything that I've read about him and everything that I've read and I've listened to his calls. He seems like a genuine guy. He comes across to me when I've seen interviews with him as a genuine guy. And so I think I trust him at this point. He's not giving me any reason not to. And so at this point, when he says to me, this is a one-time thing, I believe him and I could be wrong, you know, and like I said, it won't be the first time, won't be the last, but at this point, I believe him. So the answer to your question, I would probably hesitate to buy the company at this point just because I want to make sure before I pull the trigger that this negative earnings is not a blip on the radar. I 100% agree with you. I want to make sure you know, we talked about the sell side of this and cover the buy side as well. It's like, you know, what's waiting an extra year? Um, is the stock price really going to climb up that much higher after the company comes out of negative earnings? And if it does, you know, it's, it's not the end of the world. I think, uh, better to, for them to confirm the fact that you thought that this was just a blimp rather than, you know, the, the, the risk versus reward, I think is, is kind of skewed when you're looking at entering a new position like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, would, I think that's, I agree with that. that's a bit different than some other businesses that might be out there at the time. Yeah, I would agree with that. I, I think you know the the looking at any sort of company, whether it's you know the thing about Corning is is that you know I mentioned this kind of when we first started talking, they're boring, and it's not a sexy company. There's not a you know if you go to Seeking Alpha, which is one of my favorite sites, you don't find a lot of people writing about the company. And that's usually a sign that it's not exciting because it doesn't generate a lot of buzz about it. And if you look at, you know, if you go back again, looking at a stock chart, which is not something I do a lot of, but if you do look at their stock chart and look at the growth of the company, it's, it's infinitesimal. You know, it's not, you know, it's not one of these huge swoops up, you know, like a a Bitcoin, you know, over the last six months or whatever. Uh, you know, it's nothing like that. It's, you know, like you said, waiting a year on, on a company like Corning, you're, you're not going to have the fear of missing out. Uh, it's not going to go from, you know, $29 to $59 in a year. It's just not going to happen. And so when you look at a company like that, it's good to be patient. You know, it's, it's you're not going to have those 
other biases kicking in when you're looking at a company like Corning. All right, folks. Well, that's going to wrap up our discussion on negative earnings today. I hope you enjoyed our little chat and hearing Andrew and I disagree on something. Oh, the shock of the horror. Oh, my God. <laughs> we didn't agree on everything. Uh, but, you know, Andrew didn't have to call his lawyer and neither did I. So it was it was all good. So I hope you guys enjoyed our discussion. Oh, boy. <laughs> uh Oh, Ruh -roh. so I hope you guys enjoyed our, our little teaching moment. And the one thing I want you to take away from this is always do your due diligence. Always read the 10 K's. They'll you'll find a wealth of information in there. Yes, they can be boring, but it will also help you make great decisions. So without any further ado, you guys go out there and invest with a margin of safety emphasis on the safety. Have a great week and we will talk to you guys next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven steps to understanding the stock market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com.